I'm Laura Tremaine, and I have 10 things to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. Each episode has a prompt or a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to a friend, or share on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. I absolutely love today's guest, Mary Morantz. Her memoir, Dirt, was one of my all-time favorite reads of 2021, and my conversation with her for 10 Things to Tell You that year was also a real highlight. There is something about Mary's story and writing that I just connect so deeply with. She's back today on 10 Things to Tell You to talk about her latest book, Slow Growth Equals Strong Roots, which came out last fall. In this episode, Mary and I talk about being the most put-together person in the room in the pursuit of perfection and acceptance and that feeling of needing to prove that you deserve whatever success or opportunity you have and how our little girl selves would be so happy with the lives that we actually have now and somehow we are still wishing for something better and different occasionally. Mary Morantz grew up in a trailer in rural West Virginia. The first of her immediate family to go to college, she went on to earn a master's degree in moral philosophy and a law degree from Yale. She's the best-selling author of Dirt and Slow Growth Equals Strong Roots. Mary is also the host of the highly ranked podcast, The Mary Morantz Show. She and her husband, Justin, live in the 1880s fixer-upper by the sea in New Haven, Connecticut, with their two very fluffy golden retrievers. I felt so encouraged and seen in this conversation. I just love chatting with Mary. I really hope that you take as much from this conversation as I did. Mary Morantz, welcome back to 10 Things to Tell You. Oh my gosh. Well, you know that I love you so much. We just spent an hour the other way. The tables were turned the other way. And I could hang out with you all day, every day. I, I, I wait for the day when it's in person, but I'll take this for now. This is so fun to talk to you. Yes, we just spent an hour recording for your show, The Mary Morantz Show. Now here we are going to talk on 10 Things to Tell You about your book and your work. And I'm very excited about it because longtime listeners might remember that several years ago, uh, I guess it was the book came out in 2020, right? Yep, that's right. Your first book. And but I didn't read it till 2021. And then you were on to things to tell you. And then I loved this book. It was called Dirt. It was a memoir. Probably y'all remember me talking about it because it made my top 10 favorite things that I read Yay. in 2021. It's just one of my favorite memoirs. And actually, I listened to it on audio, which there was something very special about listening to a memoir mm. read by the author. Yeah. You read it. You have a beautiful voice. <laughs> I was captivated. I drove around LA extra minutes so I could listen to wow. it. All right. You know, what's so funny is um, I think what's interesting is some of our deepest weaknesses, we can feel like, like I've always hated my voice. And if you would have told me when I was little that I would be doing podcasting and reading audiobooks for a living, I never would have believed you. And so it's so interesting the way that other people hear us literally, you know, because it's just always been something where I think when you hear it in your own head, you you pick it apart. Wait, your voice is such a strength of yours. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think that doubt likes to attack us in the place where we can make impact. So it for sure has it for sure has there. 
It's also funny you say that. We are going to talk about other things, you guys, in a second. But Mary and I will take all the tangents, and I have no apologies. (laughs) I had a family member who, when I started podcasting, so it's been a long time now. I I was on the Sort of Awesome podcast originally, Mm. started in 2015. So we are talking about a long time, almost a decade now, that I started on that show. And I had a family member who was like... (laughs) Who was in all sincerity, and this person loves me, but they were like, should you get a vocal coach? What? And yes, and it made me so self-conscious because all of us, like none of us like love our voice necessarily Mm. when we hear it, but I I didn't like hate it. I wasn't overly self-conscious about it. I was Mm. a little more nervous about my accent Mm. because I have an accent and even more so maybe then, but it made me so nervous. When oh, she, wow. when she said that, this family mm. member said that, but I didn't get a vocal coach, by the way. Although I did, you know, maybe try to be a better podcaster voice person, but I didn't make any huge changes. I guess is what I'm saying. Mm. And over the years, I've gotten a lot of feedback about my voice that yeah. it's really soothing to people or whatever. 100%. Yeah, I can and listen to you all day. So that's hilarious <laughs> to me. Wow. So thank you. But whenever I get that particular compliment. I immediately think what you're saying. I'm like, well, I'm glad that I didn't let that shut me down or make me so scared that I messed up. Sometimes when you get so stressed about something, you just like Mm. bungle it. Or I do. But I didn't let that comment stop me because at the time I was new to using my literal voice. I'd only been blogging and writing. It was a totally new medium for me. But now here we are a decade later and I think it is like what I'm meant to be is behind this microphone. Mm, Yeah. You know what I think is so interesting is there's not a person that I meet who feels called to either write or podcast or, or do all of the things in this kind of world who doesn't have some version of this where they have been made to doubt their own voice or that their own voice will matter. And it's so interesting to me too, how that can be passed down through generations out of a, a benign, good, you know, place of wanting to protect somebody like we'll probably get into this maybe but my dad actually said to me when I told him I was going to law school he said yeah right you'll stay you won't stay in school that long because Mm. he couldn't see it you know he he was just trying to protect me from being disappointed but those man that that whole idea of like be careful how you speak to your kids because you will become the voice in their heads one day is very powerful yes yeah Yeah, it really is Mm. well this actually it feels like we take we took a tangent, but honestly, this does sort of go to a lot of the things that you write about in your new book. So Dirt was a memoir, and then this book came out last year. I'm holding it up for the camera, but it is Slow Growth Equals Strong Roots. Yeah. Mary, it is physically gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've been kind of saying that dirt and slow growth are twins, but like fraternal twins. They look very different and that was on purpose. And I say in the intro, in the author note, it's ironic to talk about giving up this achieving for our worth and having to build a life that's so beautiful on the inside. You would never guess the things that you've gone through to make a book that's so pretty on the outside. It's this pink cover with the gold foil and all this editorial photography and great typography throughout and I did it. I did that on purpose because I knew what book I would have picked up five or six years ago when I needed it. Yeah. Yes, I I noticed that you said that. Like it, five years ago, I would have bought this book because of the way it looks. Yes, and that's part of what we're talking about here. 
Yeah. Because it truly is beautiful. It has all this beautiful photography in it Mm -hmm. because you're a photographer. It's also like laid out very well, like almost like a magazine layout, but Mm -hmm. better, stronger than that. But I liked that presenting a book with this type of content in it, presenting it this way, because Mm -hmm. it feels like you can take it in. It's like a mental difference to how you take in the information versus yeah. just reading like a wall of text. Yes. Which, by the way, I've published walls of text. Yes. <laughs> so seeing it like this, I was like, oh, I didn't I didn't even know we could do books like this. That's how beautiful it was. Can oh, you say you. a little bit just about that? Like the message of like kind of with Dirt as a memoir and then moving to this. Mm. Yeah. As you, the creator, doing both of these things. Mm. Yes. Why? Why why do that? Yeah. So, okay, the cover of Dirt is a photo of the actual trailer I grew up in. My husband, Justin, took the photo the first time I brought him home to meet my family. It's all very black and white. There's dirt speckles on it. It's, you know, the the letters are smudged the way that my dad would smudge papers when I was growing up. It's very gritty and very real. And we, Laura, had actually entertained originally with the cover of Dirt having sort of like an illustration, kind of like a fiction book, you know, maybe a little like where the crawdads sing sort of feel of like an illustration of the trailer. And my publisher very wisely said to me, we need to tell people right up front that this is a very authentic story. And we do that with the photo. And you as a photographer know that, right? That it's a thousand words. Photos worth a thousand words. And so Dirt is very gritty. And I talk about in Dirt and then especially in Slow Growth that when those of us who grew up without a lot, it can flip this switch in us where we're constantly trying to run away from failure so that we stumble into success. And we can fall into this trap of believing that we have to put on the most put together version of ourselves to be the most put together woman in the room without a hair out of place, not because we're ever trying to make anybody else feel small, but because we think that's the bare minimum penance we have to pay just to take up space in the room. And one more thing I'll say about that is when we, so that's what's actually in the manuscript, this idea of the most put together woman in the room. But when we started doing the marketing, we realized that ironically, this book is for the woman so relentlessly hard on herself she would never self-identify as the most put together. And I said, that's the whole point. That's how other people end up seeing her because she doesn't even think she can blink or she'll be kicked Mm -hmm. out. So it sort of represents the physical version of the most put together version of itself. So wait, I have this bookmarked. I'm trying to show you. Yeah. (laughs) I have this exact passage bookmarked and I'm going to, can I read it out loud? Yeah, please. Because I like, this almost brought tears to my eyes when I read this. It says, When you walk into any room, she is probably the most put together person in it, whether she's leading or speaking, making people feel welcome and seen, being the social butterfly, the capable one, the one people turn to for answers, or the best dressed one there. The point is, you would never know only by looking at her the hard things she's had to overcome in her life. That's because she has spent a lifetime running away from her muddy story. Make no mistake. The most put-together woman in the room never gets that way because that's how she feels. She feels like at any moment she will be found out, a fraud, a walking, waking imposter. She doesn't do it to make anyone else feel small either. She walks in without a hair out of place, always delivering an A-plus performance at whatever she does because she has convinced herself that this is the bare minimum standard she has to hit just to be welcome in most rooms just to be invited to have a seat at most tables. Mm. Yeah. So 
that last paragraph especially is what hit me the hardest because it was like, oh, she doesn't do this because she enjoys it. (laughs) You know, I think that there are some people who just like enjoy putting Mm. themselves together or whatever. But the person that you're writing to in this book does it because if she doesn't achieve a certain amount of perfection, then she won't even be let in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And this is how I have felt my whole life. Yeah. I don't have a big T trauma that I can specifically point to that I've overcome, as you mentioned in that little passage. I don't have like this this great story of overcoming something like I grew up with a lot of privilege and with a lot of love and whatever. And yet mm. I have felt like I am struggling for worthiness always. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. There's a, there's another passage in slow growth where I talk about um, for us, the the class curve is in the grades are in and it turns out for people like us perfection is the new average and we have through the discipline instruction of our own hands taught other people that more is what they can always expect of us mm-hmm. um we're the one who the woman who always comes through because once we have made somebody proud of us we never ever want to be the ones to let them down and so that's sort of sentencing ourselves to a life where we are it's these two double whammies where nothing less than perfection is good enough. And then even when we do hit perfection, it's not celebrated because it's like, well, of course you did. That's what you always do. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a whole life of performing. And so I, through that marketing, I was saying, we we learned to pivot the message from the woman, the most put together woman in the room to the woman who is always performing, the person who's always performing. Because everybody can resonate with that. Even if you don't, wouldn't say, oh, I'm the most put together. You know what it's like to constantly feel like you're on your toes or to be twisting yourself up into tiny tethered knots because to contort is easier than to be criticized. Yes. And that's what I feel like I've done my whole life. You know, give me the A pluses, give me the gold stars. If I get enough of them, maybe you'll love me. Whether you are in a super busy season of life or don't want to make multiple weekly trips to the grocery store or just want to change up your meal routine, there is no better time to try Factor. I'm excited to partner with Factor this year because no one likes not having to cook dinner every night more than I do. Factor is a ready-to-eat meal delivery service that makes eating better every day easy. Each meal is cooked fresh and is never frozen, with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and more. Each Factor meal is pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved There are 35 different options to choose from every week, plus an additional 60 add-ons to fill you up in between meals as well. All you have to do is heat your meal in the microwave for two minutes and then enjoy restaurant quality food. Heat and eat, and that's it. These meals come right to your door, and you can also pause or reschedule your delivery anytime. There is no prep, no cooking, and no cleanup. What more can I ask for? Head to factormeals.com slash tell50 and use code tell50 to get 50% off. That's code tell50, T-E-L-L, then the numbers five zero at factor, F-A-C-T-O-R, meals, M-E-A-L-S, dot com slash tell50 to get 50% off. 
There are so many deodorant brands and products out there that it can take a lot of work to keep them all straight. But have you ever wondered if there could be one deodorant product for your whole body? Say hello to Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. My favorite part about Lumi deodorant is that it's baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. And unlike other deodorants that try to mask odor with a fragrance, Lumi is formulated with mandelic acid to stop odor before it starts. It's more of a pre-odorant, if you will. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code TELL at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, dot com and use code TELL, E-L-L. Now back to the show. And then because you have achieved what anyone objectively would say is outward success, Mm. the straight A's, the Ivy League law school, the photography business, author, like these things that are some of the highest bars of like what the world would say is success. Do you then feel like, I'm not trying to project my own feelings on you. Brent. But for me, my success markers are different. Oh, we have some similarities with becoming an author or whatever, but like I got a scholarship to college. Mm-hmm. I married a successful person. I find myself in these places where I have to constantly feel like it's not it's not achieving the thing or like getting there. It's the staying there mm-hmm. where I struggle with the worthiness factor. Like, I have to constantly prove that I was deserving of this scholarship. I have to constantly prove that I was deserving of a book deal mm. or this beautiful life that I've created. Like, I have to constantly prove it. I never actually get there where most people would have the marker of like, oh, okay, then that's the achievement. I would be like, well, that's just the beginning. That's right. A hundred percent. Every uh, peak of a mountain is the base of another one, right? That's what it feels like. It's a perpetual climb and you once you get to the uh, you know vista you saw somebody else standing on the top of their mountain top moment by the time you get to where they are there are three more mountains ahead so it's a perpetual moving target they're perpetually moving the chains on the field this the finish line is always out of reach there's a part in slow growth where i see something about like the finish line is actually on the back of like a flatbed truck and it's going 40 miles an hour ahead of you and i think the reason that that is that I write about in one of the entries is you are never the same person when you get the goal as you are the day you set it. And so by the time you get it, you already have 10 more things out of reach. There's actually this, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but there are these different characters, these different yet all the same versions of the woman always performing. One of them is the illusionist in the distance. And it says the illusionist, this perfect version of you, she has better handwriting and her to-do list is color-coded. She eats the kale that's spoiling in your refrigerator, whatever. She floats on these mountaintop moments in these ethereal golden garments, her hair never seeming to land. And you claw and scratch your way, your nails broken and bloody from the climb. She looks back and smiles at you one superior smile and then goes on without you. 
and the greatest heartbreak of your life, it is one thing to be left by another person. It's something entirely different to be left behind by yourself. And it, I had this like, you know, epiphany moment when I was writing that section where I realized all the time I was chasing future Mary and she was leaving me behind. Current today, sitting with you right now, Mary, had been doing that to little Mary all her life. She wasn't enough of something. She had to be left behind or at the very least dragged along behind me to the next mountaintop we were going to. So that's fun. (laughs) You're like piercing me, truly piercing me. (laughs) But what happened between, I'm sorry, I keep coming back to this. Maybe this is the message I need to hear. I keep coming back to it. What happened between telling your story in Mm -hmm. dirt, like Mm -hmm. being a memoir writer (laughs) and this did something happen mm. <laughs> I'm like pressing you because I'm like tell you? me what needs to happen for me to yeah. get to this place yeah well yes a hundred percent so here's what I would say I thought even as I was handing in the manuscript for dirt I thought we were done I thought this was a story about making peace with your past so you could just move on from it and, and stop letting your muddy story disqualify you from the places you're being called and the second I turned it in I felt like my faith is important to me. I felt like God said to me, like, this is, you're only halfway, you know, in the hero's journey, there's this midway point called the point of no return where you've come too far to turn back, but you're going to have to go all the way back, all the way out just to find your way back home, a changed person. And so the first half of the arc was making peace with your past. But the second arc, the second part of that arc is you haven't really made that peace if your present is still prisoner to your past. If you're still making decisions today to compensate for that story. And so this is where this unraveling of achieving for my worth started to kick in. And you and I both know we don't write books ultimately because other people need them. That's a wonderful byproduct, but we write books because that work had to happen in us. And I, I, a wonderful unraveling happens in your forties. And I just felt like God was saying to me, it is really finally time that we let go of all this chasing validation, chasing approval, chasing seats at tables that will not scoot down to make room for you, trying to prove you're not wasting people's time by the resume you can present or how you can connect them or help them or whatever the case is. And so for me, writing this book, it began with a ton of questions like, is giving up achieving for your worth actually something you can ever do? Because I've made it 40 some years and haven't done it. So can it, can, is it even possible? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that it has been some of the most thumbs in the wound work I've ever done because it's like peeling an onion. It's like unraveling. It's this tightly stitched seam that once separated the girl in the trailer from the girl after the trailer back into one integrated person. And I'll give one more analogy that will hopefully make this make sense. I talk in dirt about the girl in the red cape running through the deep dark woods, the big bad wolf ripping at her heels this voice in her head saying, you have to run and not stop running. If you stop, it will kill you. I look back over my eyes, breathless and wild eyed. And once I see it, I am the girl in the red cape, but I'm also the wolf. And that voice in my head telling me to run and not stop running, that voice is my own. Well, in slow growth, we revisit that scene from the perspective of the wolf. And it says, you know, I run and keep running this person I was born to protect. We see the wolf now as a protector in this sort of like personality disintegration Mm -hmm. that has happened, the shattering of the mirror when something hard happens in our story. And it's not roaring because it's trying to hurt us. There's a thorn in its paw. And it says at a certain point, the big bad wolf is now afraid of us. 
because we have caged that wild animal, taught it to dance in our three ring circus show, one where we know all the right pressure points to hit to keep it roaring back into fight or flight mode anytime we need it. We don't know who we are if the big bad wolf isn't chasing us. So that is what I've been working on and writing the book and then just actually trying to live it out is like, what does it look like to create from peace? And what does it look like to create from worth? And what does it look like to not let that thing that bubbles up in your throat and wants to tell everybody what you've done just so that they don't turn away from you? Like, what is it instead to just show up and go, I'm an old soul. I'm a witty sense of humor. I'm a kind heart. I'm an empath. I've walked through hard things and I will walk you through them too. And that's enough. And it's hard. It's really hard. I am writing this down on my notebook (laughs) as we record. What is it like to create from a place of peace? Yeah. I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's new to me too. I'll tell you. Well, here's another thing about your book. And now you've mentioned it a couple of times is the faith piece. So Mm. this isn't, something that I read much of anymore. I don't read a lot of faith books, faith-based books where that's like a mm. a core piece. And in your book, Slow Growth, you have these prayers. Mm. And I'll tell you if they did not bring tears to my eyes. Mm. And I give the caveat that I don't read much like this anymore, not to separate us in any way, yeah, but to say, sometimes something that you have like avoided or like a, you know, a genre you think is not for you anymore. Or I, I've talked on this show before about pay attention to what you skip. So like wow. when you're scrolling, you know, and you like scroll real fast by, by <laughs> someone's like yeah. their weight loss journey or their divorce or their, you know, their inspirational message. Sometimes we are very uh, repelled by good things, you know, so like pay yeah. attention to what you're like, skipping what you're like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to scroll past this extra quickly. I'm not going to press play on this type of episode or whatever it is. Really notice that. And I hadn't ultra noticed that, that it's a natural evolution in my life that I am not reading a lot of faith stuff anymore. So when I'm reading these prayers from you that were so beautiful and it, it pinged my spirit in a way to be like, oh, I'm noticing that I maybe needed a little bit of this. Hmm. Tell me where those prayers came from or like why you included them yeah. in this book. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of faith stuff in the books. It's not like the prayers are out of left field by any means, but just to put them in this format. And I, I'm going to have to show on social media how beautiful the layout is so people can understand what I'm trying to say. The first thing I'll tell you that I think is important to know is that I've wanted to be an author since I was five years old. And never when I was picturing that did I think it was going to be a Christian author. I have had a relationship with God since I was little. I've been on and off in church. I deeply understand people who have felt arm's length from religion or from church or from even from God. And I have always felt, always, always, always felt that the way that I was particularly wired and, and the call for me was to actually speak to people who felt like they were very much on the outside of these sort of perfect Christian circles because I never felt like I fit into those groups. And 
I mean, early when I was little, I thought I was going to write like John Grisham type books. But then when I got older and realized, well, you never write fiction, I'm not ruling that out, you know, maybe someday. But I, I started to blog and I realized, you know, it's probably going to be for entrepreneurs and and creatives and and a little less faith focused, even though that is a big part of me. And maybe some future books will will reflect that. We'll remember this conversation. But in a very practical sense, book two was contracted as a devotional follow-up to dirt. And so that's the shortest answer. But the longer answer was, well, if I am going to write a book like this, can I write it with that merry spin in the sense that it's very welcoming, even if religion is not a part of who you are? and that it's not the same way of praying to God or talking about God that we tend to see. There, there can be this very specific language that tells you whether you're in the group or out of the group, and I don't tend to fall into that as much. So like, what does it look like for me to pray these prayers and show people what it was like for me to talk to God when I was four? And in Dirt, I talk about he was the God at the window. He was this friend who drew close enough to leave marks on the glass. He was color and freedom and fire and dirt long before anybody told me who belonged with him or that he was, he had his favorites and I wasn't it or whatever. So yes, I, it's, it was, it was a stretch for me, but I, you know, part of the look of it, this like vanity fair look is like, what if, if Mary were going to write a devotional, what would that look like? And it was bringing, bringing in everything that felt true to me yeah, and nothing that didn't. Well, you did that. I do feel like, because it felt to me like we can talk about perfectionism and, and chasing worthiness and all of those things from like a practical worldly point of view, and then anchoring it in these prayers throughout the book brought me back to spirit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Also, this is a side note before I ask you this other question. You keep quoting extensively from both of your books, and I feel like, how are you doing that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I can, sometimes um. I read something I wrote and I'm like, well, that was good. Did I write that? <laughs> well, I think that's so good though. And so beautiful. Cause like those moments I feel like are when you're, you know, God is co-creating, but you know, I think like I write how I talk, I guess. And so, and how I actually think, you know, like I do think in like cadence. So it's not like a photographic memory kind of thing, but it is like a it was born up here. Okay. You know? Well, that was a, that's a skill set that every author yes. should have, but this author does not. Okay. But back to the book. Okay. So there's a, this other part for me that really stood out. And again, I actually felt this with Dirt too, even though it was a memoir. So there is obviously something about your work and the way that you communicate that like brings up a lot of stuff for people, Yeah, you know, that really yeah. forces people to look in in the mirror, even when their story is so different. I think that's one of your real gifts. But anyway, this part Thank you. that just, yeah, just really stopped me is I'll be happy when. Hmm. And I think because from the outside, I have everything I've ever dreamed of. Actually, I truly do. Like literally, mm -hmm. emotionally, all the things. I have a career that I want. It looks different than I thought, but it is what I wanted. I have a beautiful home, family, friends, health, everything. Mm -hmm. And in the year of our Lord, 2023, 
I have struggled for the for deeply struggled with some discontent. Yeah. And then it's this shame spiral of, well, I, sh- I am the last person on God's green earth who should have any discontent ever of all time. So then I feel mm-hmm. bad for having any kind of discontent. And then I go in this cycle. Actually, I haven't even talked about this much publicly because I, I'm very afraid that it'll be misheard. Mm-hmm. Because I am, yeah. I am recognizing, I, I, I am recognizing that it's not right. You know, that it's not, right isn't the right word, but you know, I'm recognizing that there's something here that that is disconnected. Mm-hmm. So when I was reading that part in your book that I'll be happy when, mm. to bring it more universally, I think a lot of people feel like, well, what are, here are the examples that you give that I thought were very relatable. Like when I finish school, when the bills are all caught up, when the debt is paid off, when we buy our first house. When I finally find someone to love, I'll be happy when I get that recognition. I'll be happy when I achieve that goal. I'll be happy when I'm making that much money. I'll be happy when I am where she already is. That's right. Yeah. And that right there, that line, that last line is maybe the root, pun intended, (laughs) the root of some of my discontent is a... Mm feeling like I'm, I am not where she, the metaphorical she already is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things are coming to mind. I'm just going to riff on all of them as quickly as I can, because that there's seven of them at least. No, I'm just kidding. Not that many. Number one is I'm very curious what Enneagram you are. I don't know if you get into the Enneagram. Do you know? I'm an Enneagram one. Now I have mixed okay. feelings about the Enneagram. I always say that. I mm. I have some real strong mixed feelings about it, which I've also heard yeah. Enneagram ones are the ones that have the most mixed <laughs> feelings about it. Okay. So, all right. So I fit perfectly. Okay, go on. Well, the reason I ask it is I, for a long time, I thought I was an Enneagram three with a strong four wing and I, and Ian Morgan Cron was on my show and he said, you should look up self-preserving Enneagram fours. So Enneagram fours are, you know, the individualists and we're super big on originality and listening to sad music just to feel sad. And one of our big things is the fatal flaw. We go through life believing there's this fatal flaw in us that if we could just overcome, if we just didn't have this missing piece, then we could be where she is, or then we could be happy like she is, or we could get stuff done like she does. And so that's what made me ask that in the first place. The second thing that came up for me that I need you to hear right now is sometimes, you know, of course we're called to be content. Of course we're called to consider it all joy. But sometimes I think that kind of like restlessness that we feel or people being brought into our lives who are somewhere that we feel that like pulse or that quick tap of like, ooh, that feels like where I want to go. That person is being brought into our lives, not as a punishment, but as a guide. And I always say, you know, at the appropriate time, a guide will be provided. So if a guide has appeared, maybe it's the appropriate time, right? And so when you're seeing something or feeling that kind of restlessness or that wrestling in your spirit, rather than it being something that you're doing that's wrong, it could just be a hint of where you're being called next and what is in store for you next. So that's the other thing that I would say. And then the final thing that I would say is that I deeply get it. I deeply get it. And I just want to like, not that we're going to read the whole dang book, but I do want to just read this one part because I think it gets to the heart of what all of us feel. And I think that you also just laugh when you hear it. Growing up tends to do that to us. Somewhere among the mortgage payments and the stainless steel appliances, the retirement funds and the endless piles of laundry, we lose that wonder for a life we have spent a lifetime dreaming of. I used to sit with a blue spiral bound notebook outside the trailer where I grew up in West Virginia, drawing sketches and dreaming of the real house I would one day have. Now all I'm tempted to see is a kitchen that needs updating, 
perpetually dirty dishes, and a boiler in the basement that if all its coughs and sputterings were any indication, we're going to need to replace pretty soon. We lose ourselves in our obligations and color-coded to-do lists. We feel tired all the time. We drink more wine than maybe we should. Food has started to lose all its flavor, and we just let the episodes run on the latest binge-worthy television show one after another after another until all the plot lines blur. We're numb. We're checked out of our own lives. And we're not even sure we would recognize that wild thing untamed version of our littlest selves if she came and sat down on the couch beside us with her skin knees and tangled hair, looked us right in our exhausted eyes that are mirror reflections of her own and asked the question we've been asking ourselves for far too long now. What happened to you? Um, and I wrote that part, that section in part because I read an interview with Viola Davis in People Magazine, who she also grew up without a lot in outside of Boston, I believe. And the interviewer said, oh, like, do you feel like you're healing little Viola? And she was like, are you crazy? She's healing me. She's dancing around my kitchen going, look at our refrigerator. Um, and I just thought that was so powerful of like, we feel like there's always so far to go. But if little Laura showed up in your life today, she would be freaking out at how far you guys have come. Yes. Yes to all of that. <laughs> We've talked about a lot of things today. Tell me the part where we're going to get strong roots, Mary. Mm. I need you to tell me that part. Oh, yes. So slow growth equals strong roots. Um, because be most... I just want to interrupt you to say, I feel good <laughs> on the slow growth part. Like, <laughs> I feel I'm like nice and slow. I have <laughs> nailed that part. Yeah. But the strong roots part, which I, I'm not saying I haven't nailed that in some areas of my life, but I sort of just want to hear like what that part of all mm -hmm. of this means to you. Like, not that we're stri we're trying to strive less to get to something we're not chasing or whatever anymore, but what does that feel like? Yeah. So slow growth equals strong roots is one of those frustrating things because it's not even my line. It's it's a line that my husband, Justin, said to me early in our business when I was getting really impatient and everybody else was getting all the things that I wanted. And he said, slow growth equals strong roots. And it's like, you know, the, the thing people put uh, on t-shirts and, and tag me in and, and all of that. And it's such a powerful statement, but it's so hard to live. Yes. And so in the book, uh, to give this example, to really kind of drive it home, I talk about in life, in our work, we can choose to be weeds, flowers, or trees. And I say with weeds, where one night there was nothing, one day there was nothing, you go to bed and the next morning, either the field is covered in dandelions, they've multiplied with dizzying speed where you get these six foot tall milkweed where they've popped up overnight. And in that moment, it's very tempting to say, I, yes, like that. I want to grow just like a weed. I want to explode overnight. I'm ready to be, you know, big on the surface. Um, but anybody who has ever walked through a field of milkweed, and I was very lucky that we had a field of this behind our trailer, we would go along, boop, 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 and you can pull these six foot tall plants out with just a half inch of roots. And so I say, it's so tempting to say we want to be weeds in life until we realize that they grew only for themselves. They grew only for what's on the surface. They were invasive and they took rather than standing for something. And this sort of idea that um, we, if you are growing that way, you're really only doing it for yourself. Mm -hmm. And flowers are great. They create beauty in the world. The world certainly needs more beauty. But I want for all of us something more than that. And that is to be a tree. And to be a tree is to grow slow and steady over the long haul. While the weed hits six foot tall overnight, we're still a tiny seed. And we will grow to be a thing of incredible height. 
We will grow to be a thing of incredible beauty, but we don't want to be satisfied with just that. We want to give this fruit, bear this fruit that can be given away and to be shade and shelter for others. There's this great quote that says, a society becomes great when men plant trees or women plant trees that they will never get to sit under. And so that is kind of the idea, right? It's this idea of overnight is overrated. And I actually did a post today that was like the seven fatal flaws of overnight success. And they all really boiled down to when you are not in it for the long haul, you're not actually ready when the success comes. You won't be a good steward of it. You, it won't have mattered to you. You won't build up the grit muscle. And so um, my whole life, my whole career has been marked by just sort of a long, slow, steady climb that I have many times resented. But in hindsight, what it means is that I was, when I got to where I was going, nobody questioned it. Yeah. Nobody questioned it. The time had been put in. The respect had been earned. The stewardship was there to handle it well. And so it's not an easy path, but I do believe it's the path where, you know, I think there's kind of an, a correlation of like how quickly you pop up is how quickly you will be gone. Mm -hmm. So I'm choosing that slow just means that I'm being prepared for a really long time in this career. Oh my God, I, need, I needed to hear all of this. But I can't end our time together without you talking about, because this is, you know, me, <laughs> the girl in the oversized sweatshirt. Will you just tell us yeah. that, your thoughts on that? Yeah. So that particular section in the book is talking about, you know, I've been a speaker in the photography world for years, since 2006, seven, something like that. And we would go and we would speak in these stages and we would talk about business and we would talk about our six figures and how sexy they were and all of our successes. And at every conference, I felt like I had to have just taken off the tags of a brand new outfit before I walked on stage. And I kind of compare it to like Kevlar, you know, to, to make me bulletproof to any kind of judgments or criticisms. Because when I was growing up, most we had some some new clothes, but most, a lot of my clothes came from tag sales and a lot of them were hand-me-downs um, from like my grandma Goldie. And so one in particular was just a giant sweatshirt. There's a photo of me with my really curly, unruly hair, you know, so it's ironic that I don't want to have a hair out of place. Um, standing in front of the sign for New Hampshire, apparently super excited about New Hampshire, Granite State. I think that's right. Um, and I have my arm stretched out and you can see how gigantic this sweatshirt is. And the time that I finally stood on stage, you know, we'd given lots of talks. A few people would stay back. Thanks so much. Great business advice. The time I stood on stage and talked about the girl in the trailer, the girl in the oversized sweatshirt, we had a line out the ballroom, this thousand person ballroom, two hours security eventually had to break it up, not because of what I was wearing or because how impressive I was, but because people wanted to stand across from me and say, I have never seen somebody up on that stage who grew up like I did. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. I had no idea that was in your story. And I'm the girl in the trailer too. And I have a whole folder of images on my phone of trailers people have sent me. And so what I take from that is we think that all of that polished, all of that pretty will keep us safe, but shiny is actually a stiff arm. We think perfection will equal belonging but it's actually the vulnerability. It's actually the hard parts of our story that draw people close, that they feel safe enough to stand in front of you and say, me too. And so I'm learning. I have a love and appreciation of clothes because we just didn't have a lot of them. I still have that to this day. That's very authentic to me, but I'm learning that it's not a requirement to show up 
So I wanted to end on that because, well, first of all, I have a whole sweatshirt thing because I wear sweatshirts every day in my life. So I thought I started out that section thinking it was funny, but then also realizing that that's why I encourage people to share their stuff is because when they are seeing you, and I don't know what, in what context you are telling that story from the stage, but they're seeing you as a successful businesswoman Mm-hmm. an author and again like Ivy League educated like all these things that they make assumptions of how you must have grown up and so for them to 100%. hear that story you know that's why we share our stuff and then the mm-hmm. other side of it that like touched my heart was you know I dress really boldly mm-hmm. so when I'm going to a conference or any a social event or whatever like I truly like these things I'm wearing. I mean, obviously I do like them and I'm really drawn to like bold lipstick and bold patterns and like things like that. And also I have come to realize that it is also a deflection or a mask. Mm. It's like a way to make whatever I'm wearing be more interesting because it's less vulnerable than if they were like, ask me about myself. (laughs) Yeah. Well, have you ever heard this? It's like a conference game that they'll have people do where it's like icebreaker and it's like, go compliment on somebody on something, but it can't be anything physical. Oh, that's hard. That's hard. You know? And so it is this idea of, it gets to the same point I was talking about earlier of what if I just show up as me and there's nothing I'm wearing or nothing I did, nothing they know about me that I know is going to be an interesting thing. And I just have to be me. That's right. Because it is, sometimes it's a mask. Sometimes it is trying to be more interesting than I feel like I am. Sometimes it's a crutch of that's going to be the conversation starter. Or yeah. it's, I'm going to be perceived a certain way. Like I I don't feel confident enough in making an impression just on my own. So I have mm-hmm. to make yep. an impression with these like sort of wild things. <laughs> Which again, it's yeah. not... This is a little tricky to talk about because it's not inauthentic. Like I love the way I dress and I love other people who dress really yes. boldly. I'm very attracted to them. And so in the when you're, you know, trying to emulate you know, style icons that I like that are really bold. So there is a taste yeah. part of this here too. Yes. But then there's 100%. this other part of it that I've slowly started to realize of like, oh, I I use this part Mm. instead of like enhancing like as to be an expression of my actual personality or self I'm using it as a costume almost of Mm. that keeps my truest self you know behind something bright I so get it because another example of this really quick is there's a totally different level of confidence or even just a level of like outgoingness or gregariousness or like energy I've never said gregariousness in a casual conversation. <laughs> I bring it out in people. We're going to go with it. <laughs> I am a totally different, not a different person. It's not a different like mask or anything like that, but I'm a different level of comfortable and confident when I'm a speaker at a conference, when people approach me versus when I'm an attendee at a conference mm. and I feel like nobody knows who I am. Like, like when you're a speaker, your face is on the poster. And so it puts the onus on other people to start the conversation. Kind of. I mean, I do think as a speaker, you should be reaching out. I'm just saying that's how it tends to go or they come up to you after the talk or what have you. And it's kind of similar when I'm wearing like an outfit that people comment on, it puts the 
they start the conversation. Okay. They well, want, I know they want to talk to me then. This actually yeah. dovetails with, and y'all are going to have to go listen to our conversation on Mary's show because it dovetails with a little something we were talking about over there about mm. I feel more comfortable in DMs with strangers mm. than I do on yes. text messages with friends. And it's a little bit of what you're describing of like, well, in DMs, they've come to me. Yes. Yeah. Because that's, it's like the same as being a speaker, sort of. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm yeah. they're replying to my story or whatever on Instagram. And they've come yeah. to me versus like with friends, the sometimes relationship can just feel vulnerable. And then also yeah. not to keep harping on this, this clothes and outfit thing because it's metaphorical, but also literal. Yeah. So when someone sees, like I get feedback sometimes because I'm dressed in a bold pattern or a bold color or something. Sometimes I get like a, a feedback of like, oh, it's, you must have a lot of confidence to wear something like that, or you're like really brave mm. to wear something like that or whatever. Mm. And I feel the opposite when I look at someone who dresses like, like Gwyneth Paltrow, like in mm. total neutrals, you know, very mm. chic and like, mm. you know, monochromatic or whatever. <laughs> I see that as like, I mean, you might as well be naked. <laughs> like, I'm like, that to me feel, would feel, I just would never have the confidence to dress mm. that no armor. sophisticated. Yeah. Mm. It feels better to me to dress silly. I mean, I hope, I hope I look good, but you know, silly in a way, but most people, I think like the majority of people I think are experiencing that differently. They'd rather wear like neutrals and sort of not stand out with their clothing. And they think that it takes bravery to be so bright. And I think it takes bravery yeah. to just like stand there and just be yourself and like wearing all black White or something. Down. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. You talk about in the life council, you talked about that phrase of you've gotten the feedback people thought you were unapproachable, which I think is kind of going along the same lines of like, you're really brave. You're really confident. You're really like bold. And I've gotten the com the feedback of like, you're really intimidating. Mm -hmm. And I think for both of us, if people knew how much that actually breaks our heart, because we never want somebody to feel like they don't have a spot at the table. We never want to make somebody feel that way. And that goes back to that, like shiny as a stiff arm. We think we're holding them far enough away. They can't see the cracks in the facade. But what, what ends up happening is that that belonging and that connection gets lost in the name of us thinking we'll be accepted. Or in the name of, like we sort of started with, I care so much about people thinking I'm competent or like better than yeah. competent, like people thinking that I'm really good at whatever it is that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. I care so much about that, that it can you know, hamper relationships or whatever, because it comes off as unapproachable or intimidating or whatever, because I'm just trying to look so strong. Mm. Now, I, it's, I don't want us all to be completely self-deprecating because I feel like I know you well enough and know myself well enough to know, like, we are strong and we are competent yeah. and we are, yeah, we know, we actually know that we are truly good at what we do. I feel like we, that yes. is totally true. And also, yes. <laughs> I feel like sometimes my clothes are a mask and sometimes I'm overcompensating mm. with how strong I want to look because I am worried I'm not actually good enough to be there mm. or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's not like we're secretly like weak, mean people behind the scenes. Yeah. It's, it's all of these things at once, I guess. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But I think that really gets into what we were talking about. If she would never do that to make somebody else feel small, 
She has made it her life mission to pursue excellence in addition to being the most put together in the room, not because she ever wants somebody else to feel bad. Like I would never want somebody to feel bad about what they do because I simultaneously am confident in what I do. You yes. know, it's like a really delicate line to walk there. Yeah. Mary, we've been talking for hours because we did your show and now my show. <laughs> I could continue to talk to you. Like if we were sitting in my actual house with a glass of wine, we would just <gasps> talk till midnight. I know it. Forever. I want that so bad. I do too. <laughs> but I I love the work that you do. I think it's so important. I love your books. Thank you for coming and sharing Same. yourself with the 10 Things to Tell You audience again. Can you tell them where to find you online and your books and all your things? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I'll tell everybody is, we mentioned this earlier, the five different characters, versions of the woman always performing. They are the tightrope walker, the performer always on her toes, contortionist twisting herself up into tiny tethered knots, masquerader hiding in plain sight, and the illusionist in the distance. We actually put together a quiz called the Achiever Quiz. So it's achieverquiz.com or marymorans.com slash quiz. It takes like two minutes and it will tell you not only which type you are, but it'll tell you your strengths, where you get stuck and mm. kind of, you know, are afraid to get started and how you move forward with purpose. And so check that out, achieverquiz.com. Yes, everybody, you want to know, you want to hear her wisdom on this and kind of know what what type of achiever you are for sure. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of those today because I took all the tangents. <laughs> no, no, it's good. We get messages all the time though of like people actually crying when they get their results because it's so it's scary how spot on they are. So we're really proud of that. And then it's marymorans.com for that's a good hub for the podcast. You can come over and listen to Laura's episode on the Mary Morans show. Find both of the books, Dirt and Slow Growth Equals Strong Roots. And then at Mary Morans, M-A-R-Y-M-A-R-A-N-T-Z on all the socials. Send me a DM if you listened. Tell me what your achiever type is after you take the quiz. And I'll link all of that, as always, in the show notes and tag Mary on social so you guys can go find out more about her and follow her and read her books. It's amazing. Thank you so much, Mary. This was super fun. Thank you. You've just listened to an episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. For show notes and links, go to 10thingstotellyou.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. And you can also join our free connection group on Facebook to discuss episodes and topics. For bonus content, ad-free episodes, and monthly Zoom gatherings with me, join my Secret Stuff Patreon community by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. Thanks for listening.